Hello, my docs. Bob Sham here, introducing you to another sweet, sweet Documenteers episode. This episode, Angela is back, and we are discussing our first ever serial killer documentary, Eileen Warnos, The Selling of a Serial Killer, in 1993, directed by Nick Broomfield, one of the earliest film accounts of the Eileen Warnos case. It goes into a layer of things that is, well, gosh, if you haven't seen this in a long time, it's available on Netflix, unless they took it off at the time that I recorded this, but I doubt it. It should be there. So reacquaint yourself if you so dare, and then come join us here. Or if you don't give a fuck and just want to move along and listen to the show, that's fine too. Do what you want. You do you. You can find us on places like iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, we are now on the Google Play Music app that comes with Androids. You can find us on there now as well. And I know I say this a lot, and I'm probably going to say it a little longer. Five stars on iTunes. The only time stars are acceptable, and that really helps us out. You have no idea. Most podcasts run through iTunes. A lot of other podcast apps pull from iTunes. It's like uh, you can't. Make a UN deal without China. It's not the situation we want, but it's the situation we gotta play. So give us five stars on iTunes and leave a review. That's also hugely helpful. And just say anything. I would recommend demanding iTunes convert to a Herzog rating system. And I may have to formally write down the Herzog rating system because there's also Arsenio Hall for television shows and Clint Howard for regular feature films. There's Rebecca Black's for songs, what's the best songs. And I really got to, I really do need to write this down because what is the ratings of plays at the theater? What is the ratings of YouTube videos? What is the ratings of something randomly funny you see on the street? How would you rate that? How would you review that? You might say, why do you need to review everything? I say, shut up! Yeah. <laughs> My wife just asked me if I was okay <laughs> after I yelled that. All right. <laughs> well, let's get on with the movie. Eileen Wardos, The Selling of a Serial Killer. Now, here is a motion picture film. A thousand feet, 16,000 separate photographs. Let's tidy up this tangle of film by putting it on a reel. And you made love by yourself. Made him out of my own. I made him out of my own two hands. <laughs> I built him. Steve and Lothar lived in a teepee together. The, the movie we are going to discuss here might be this serial killer. We're doing our first serial killer movie. Yes. And this serial killer might elicit more uh, compassion than maybe any other serial killer in terms of how people take in this person. Yeah, I definitely go back and forth a lot on how I feel about this person and how much sympathy I have for them. 
feel like we're playing a pronoun game right now because we don't want to say yet who we're talking about. It's complicated. I'll definitely say through the years, I have looked at this case many times through documentaries and podcasts and movies. And there are definitely things I thought were true that I now believe were not true. Assumptions that I had made, I don't know at what point I was steered in those directions. If I watched something biased, if I misinterpreted, if it was movie magic. (laughs) But I was really glad to watch this because it kind of shone a light from a direction I didn't expect. What's up, Docs? That's Docs with an X. And we are in association with the Center for the Documentation of Documentaries. Have you wondered why there's a guy in a lab coat writing down? Everything we say as we record these. I don't I don't see a guy in a lab coat, Bob. He's right there. You don't see him? Yeah, he's from the Center for the Documentation of Documentaries. Oh, yeah. I didn't even notice him. He's so quiet and unassuming. They're taking down all the information we got because that's what we do is document documentaries. Yeah. And they take that information for science. They document the document of documentaries. Yeah, that's correct. The Center wow. for the Documentation of Documentaries. Documentation of Documentaries. They are a bit of a donor to uh, the Shamco Studios here. And yeah, they didn't... I think they recently have told me it's cool to talk about them. I've been wanting to keep them quiet. But they're gathering all this data for science. Oh, okay. The data of us documenting documentaries, which is right in their wheelhouse. They won't tell me who their big donor is for their center, though. I'm a little concerned. They've asked me to stop asking. (laughs) And uh, the guy we have here, he won't talk. His name is Richard. (laughs) Don't laugh at Richard. He's very sensitive. (laughs) But, yeah, we're we're moving... (laughs) We're you better not act like you have all these do- all this donor money because it's not much. <laughs> We're going to need donors at some point to help pay for these microphones we keep fiddling with. The Center for the Documentation of Documentaries, or the CDD, has they have <laughs> put up money for one Yeti microphone. What is that about one hundred twenty, one hundred thirty bucks? They said that's all they can kind of give right now, but it helps. <laughs> Every little bit helps. Their their contributions keep us from asking our listeners for money. And we're trying to pay our dues, you know. We want to get to a place that we're proud of. Yeah. Not that I'm not proud of each and every second. I'm proud already. Spent. But let me tell you, we're going into the stratosphere. Documentaries will be the new rock and roll. Cool. Yeah. I'm ready for that. We are discussing... The movie, The Killer, that we were referencing earlier that we seem to be afraid to discuss is... I'm not scared. The 1993 film Eileen Warnos, Selling of a Serial Killer by Nick Broomfield. And this movie, it covers her trial, her first sentencing to death, and a few more. This is one of the earliest things people may have seen on Eileen Warnos beyond news reports and stuff like that. I thought I had seen this before we watched it. I don't remember the things that are in this documentary. I don't think I actually did. I think I may have seen the sequel to this documentary, which we'll talk about later. But Nick Broomfield did another movie about Eileen, and that may have been what I actually saw. 
Yeah, and the second one is covering leading up to her execution, I right. believe, in 2002. Spoiler alert. Yeah, the Eileen Warnos gets <laughs> executed. If you did not know that. But I think uh, the selling of a serial killer film, it really started the sympathy towards Eileen. And up until the movie Monster came out, I think that was the best example of something that kind of maybe grayed the situation out a little bit. But this movie doesn't necessarily posit that Eileen is innocent. No, it doesn't posit that she's innocent at all. It doesn't even get into maybe details of murders, except for some shots of Eileen in court testifying to the uh, murder of, what's his name? Mallory. Mallory. We'll talk about that. That was difficult for me. But this movie is more about the the circle of bullshit that kind of floating around this case. And yeah, what's the on. hangers on. By the end of it, you might not think that Eileen is the most hated person in the documentary. Yeah, there, this is a documentary full of villains. Yes, villains on villains on villains. And, and who, Nick Broomfield is the nice guy in the middle. And who isn't a villain is just some, uh, probably just a Floridian biker. Yeah. <laughs> with a, with a one or two things to say. Uh, maybe uh, a guy a guy in the hotel room. That guy might be like a an antihero. I don't know. He's a little. He Let's get like, in. He seemed like a bit you're of talking, a stubber. You're talking about people we got to explain. We see shots of the I-75. This is uh, where a lot of these murders took place. Yes. We hear Nick's, Nick Broomfield's dry narration. Just like shooting facts at you, like fact after fact after fact. A lot of stuff regarding Ty Moore and the events leading up to their arrest. There's a, a font. It looks like kind of a newsprint font that intros the movie. Yeah. Automatically, this has a very a very classic feel to it. This is kind of, if you think of uh, a stereotypical documentary layout and an intro, that's documentary pie. You know? Yeah, I mean, and almost as soon as he started talking, and I know he has he has a very thick accent, very much reminded me of Herzog from the beginning. Right. Just very quickly setting the stage so that he can get to what he really wants to show you. They're very tonally similar. Yeah. Bernard Herzog's probably a little more guilty of projecting himself more onto things. Mm. But this guy is definitely in line with that dry sensibility that comes with a lot of documentaries. Usually don't like a documentary filmmaker to be in the film. Yeah. But this was the perfect example. Yes. Of how to do it right. And there's a point in the movie, even where he breaks his dryness, you could tell he's very frustrated. Yes. But as much as Nick's narration and his presence is felt in the film, it does not really take the shine off of anything that he puts in front of the camera. Yeah, no, because he doesn't make it about him. Instead, you are navigating this situation with him. But you're dealing with the frustrations through him. Yes. You're on that journey with him dealing with these people and this stuff. And in a movie about Eileen Warnos, where she doesn't show up beyond courtroom footage for half the movie. Yeah. It is pretty hard to take the shine off of something so notorious, too. Yeah. So these facts, he starts telling us the beginning, we're going down the interstate. We're in Daytona Beach. We see some shaky news footage of some composite drawings of what turns out to be Eileen Warnos and her girlfriend, Ty. Yeah, I did not know this. So he starts running down the numbers, you know, between 1989 and 90 that eight men were murdered. 
you know, that she was the first female serial killer. But then they show this image of these composite drawings with this headline talking about how they were trying to find these angels of death. Yes. And this was... This is why I think I haven't seen this before, because I've never for a second thought that Ty was involved, because I think everything I've seen has led me to believe she's not. And obviously, there's a lot of layers to this entire story, but I was surprised that the beginning they were looking for two women and not just Eileen. Yes, and the drawings looked exactly like Eileen and Ty. Yeah. But yeah, the Angels of Death label, that's one that gets thrown around a lot on women who kill. Oh yeah, there are some women who... Uh, committed murders in a funeral. No, sorry, in a um, an old folks' home. <laughs> <laughs> I just realized what I said. Well, there do need to be living people in funeral homes. There do. Yeah, I mean, you could, you could. Hey, that might be the perfect place to commit murder in a funeral home. Just cover that shit right up. It's interesting though because Angel of Death or Angels of Death is typically labeled upon women who are seen to be taking someone out of their misery, yeah. like the ladies I just mentioned in the nursing home. Caregiver jobs. Yeah, caregiver situation. And I think they just threw that out there. I think Eileen's more complicated, obviously, yeah. than being lumped in with people who do that. I wonder if it had any tie to do with the fact that she was in, like, the biker world. Or hung around, at least. There's a police video. We see Lee. Her name is Eileen, also called Lee. We'll, yeah. We'll meet an Arlene very soon. And that gets a little confusing, so I'll try to say Lee Lee when I talk about Eileen Warnos. Yeah, the police video is following her arrest. In January 9, 1991, she was arrested at the Last Resort Biker Bar. She confesses, probably one of the most calm we see her in this movie, Yeah, is this initial confession, in her words, that she wishes she was never a hooker. But self-defense is a word that she uses a lot still. But she's doing this for her lover, Ty. Yeah, she did not confess immediately. She was in jail for a while, but this this first image of her that we see is her actually giving her first confession. Eileen would kill about seven or eight men. Uh, she would try to solicit rides with them and maybe get them to allow her to do sex acts on them. At least for money. For money. There's some debate over... The claim of self-defense might have some credence with perhaps one individual mm -hmm. who had a, a, a sexually violent history. Yeah. She's been quoted as saying that two of the men sexually assaulted her and the other six tried. Yeah. So she says it's self-defense every time, but that's what she said is that two actually sexually assaulted and one, and the other six attempted to and that she was defending herself. We meet a guy. Oh, man. He, he calls himself Dr. Legal. Steve Blazer. Steve Blazer. We see him. He has a weird dummy. He makes some weird joke <sighs> regarding sex abuse and imaginary friends when he was a kid. Yeah. It's hard I, to tell if he was joking or not, really. Yeah, I didn't. I actually didn't catch the sex abuse reference, but he did talk about how he'd had an imaginary friends since he was a kid, and he, like, made this dummy guy to be his friend. He's also doing an interview, I believe, on his front porch— in a robe, this guy's got, like, curly afro, like, white guy 80s afro going yeah. on. My dad had one back in the day. Big, huge, bushy beard. Big dude. And he's a TV lawyer and a former musician. Uh, one of his credits that they, I, I assume he makes a point for it to be stated yeah. is that he once opened for Leon Redbone. We also are quickly introduced to 
the woman who essentially hired or convinced Lee to hire Steve Blazer, Arlene, what's her last name? Praley? I believe I'm saying that correctly. She adopted Eileen after she was arrested. She's a self-described born-again Christian. Yeah. She keeps wolves because she loves their spirit, and so she breeds them and keeps them in a cage. She also breeds Tennessee walking horses, which do a little research into how they make those horses do that. You might not be so pleased. Uh, We're from Tennessee, and this takes place in Florida, and Tennessee walking horses are They've been a thing that, like, my grandma is interested in. But as a Tennessean, let me tell you, I don't give a shit. Just let the horse walk. Yeah. Let it walk the way it wants to walk and just be a horse. Let the wolves be wolves. And let wolves be wolves. Hell yeah. (laughs) Let wolves be wolves. In this interview with Arlene, she she is wearing a rad wolf shirt. I'm very jealous of that wolf shirt. I would love to own that wolf shirt. According to Arlene and Steve... Eileen Lee wants $25,000 for an interview. Arlene refuses to talk about anything until Lee gets her money. And it's almost like they're selling this idea to Nick because Steve actually says at one point, all the characters in the play are so interesting. Like he's not even thinking about this as a woman's life. He's like trying to sell this story to Nick. This is within the first 10 minutes of the film. Yeah. Is money starts being thrown around. And it's going to happen a lot more. Then there's this story. I uh, this this kills me. But Arlene, again, like you said, she's a she loves Jesus. She's talking about God all the time, and she does tell Nick one of the few things she will tell Nick is that maybe she can also get her doctor to do an interview with him, because her doctor told her that when she had a really bad accident a year before that she almost died, but the love of God flowing through Arlene. To Lee is what saved Arlene from dying. (laughs) She must have Donald Trump's doctor. Steve and Arlene are discussing cost percentages for Nick's interview. They want money from Nick Broomfield, the director of this film. Steve says he is also Lee's agent. And ultimately, it's very expensive. And Nick just uses news footage because it's a lot cheaper. Yeah. Eileen's relationship with Arlene... At the very beginning, it's very positive. Lee is writing poems about how nice Arlene is. Mm, mm -hmm. And Arlene is uh, the word God and Jesus is not far from her lips at any time. Oh, yeah. She actually at one point does try to say that she's not interested in money, just good Christian love. Steve, in an interview, says it's not about greed. We hear a little bit about the moments leading up to Lee's arrest. Ty and Lee lived at a hotel. The Fairview. And when the sketches came out and the heat seemed to be on, Ty bailed to Ohio. And she would later testify against Eileen. Eileen's history is not good. Uh, There's a lot of claims that she would say and go back and forth on over the years. A lot of it is not uh, set up in this movie. It's just kind of like knowledge that we have. Yeah, he does tell that, you know, she was born in 1956 in Troy, Michigan. Talks about her father. Who apparently uh, raped a a child. He would later kill himself in prison. Her mother would abandon her. Eileen would stay with her grandparents. The grandfather was apparently an abusive alcoholic. Yeah. And the grandmother was 
a good old fashioned do nothing in the face of abuse. Yeah, she had a brother. Name who, was Keith. Keith. Okay, so through the years, there's been times where she said that she and Keith had a sexual relationship with each other. She would go back and forth on yeah. that later. She would even sometimes deny uh, some sexual abuse from her family. But I could not imagine, considering where Eileen was at this point, that she did not suffer uh, ex- some extreme amount of abuse. Yeah, absolutely. She started uh, prostituting since 14. I think she made that claim. Yeah. Some accounts go back to 11 in terms of as far as uh, obtaining items and positive reinforcement from For sexual, sexual contact. Yeah. yeah. She got pregnant at 14. Uh, by uh, allegedly her one of her grandfather's friends. Yeah, I've heard that before. They put that child up for adoption. As far as we know, this person, I think, would only be maybe a few years older than we are. Wow. And yeah. if, if that person even knows. Gosh. I don't know whether I hope they do know or don't. You could go back and forth. I kind of hope that. they don't. I know it's been really difficult on children of serial killers who everyone knows who they are. Is it Gacy's? kid like change their names or something or they there's someone some serial killers children like dennis raiders a lot of his wife and kids i think they went on but i think i saw some reports of i'm honestly not sure yeah i might have made that i might have been thinking of raider dennis raider the btk killer yeah but apparently his son has been trying to contact visiting him in prison that btk is one of the most fucked up Back to Eileen, she was on the street by the time she was 16. Eileen claimed she had no job since 1984, described herself as a professional call girl. Yeah. We go, Nick Nick Broomfield goes to the last resort. Yeah, we go there with Nick. It's a biker bar where, as you said, Eileen was arrested. Yeah, they went there to find a guy named Cannonball. Cannibal, or CB for short. CB. Cannibal was wearing a choker. <laughs> I didn't notice that. Uh, there was a lot going on in that bar. Oh, yeah. You know, I got relatives that are that live in Daytona. Yeah. I think this is in Daytona or close by. Yeah. We can go to the last resort. We should go to the last time, resort. Next time we go down there. You have an aunt who's married to a biker. Yeah. Maybe that's like the most bikerific town next to like Myrtle Beach. It's like saying there's grass in your yard. Well, I just mean we know a biker. Oh, sure. Like, I don't know that we'd be welcomed <laughs> just as us walking into a biker bar. I have a feeling that if you have money and they'll willing, serve you a beer. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Play a game of pool. Sure thing. There yeah, might we be should some, check it out. There might be some cultural uh, differences, but. Any place will take your money. That's true. And it's not like we'd come in there trying to start some shit. Friends in Low Places is playing. And if oh, you were yeah. writing that in a script today, it would seem like too much. Well, that song was very big for years, especially yes. during this time. Yeah. But yeah, Garth Brooks, Friends in Low Places is as on the nose as you can get. Yeah, Nick, Nick had been told to go there because apparently Cannonball knew Lee very well, but he said he didn't know her that well. He knew her about as well as any bartender knows a regular. He also said he didn't think of her as someone who came there all the time. This bar has been called multiple times her main hang. I think it was on the path to where she used to stay. Yeah, he actually tells this story about the night before she was arrested, she was walking home and she was really drunk and she had stopped at the last resort 
and had gone to sleep on this chair on the back patio and basically slept there all night. Nick sort of made the comment, nobody messed with her. Because she was a, and this is a term I've never. Well, Nick asked, and Cannonball's response was. She was a flat cracker, which apparently means lesbian. That's a term I've never, never. heard in my life. Later that day, the next day. That, that, that day, probably within 30 minutes. Cannonball tells him, you really need to talk to this other guy. The human bomb. The human bomb. They go into the back of the place, and a guy puts on a show, one of those shows where he blows himself up. Nick tries to talk to the bomb man right after the show. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, because he knows Eileen, or alleges to know Eileen pretty well. Yeah. But the guy's like, yeah, man, I'll talk to you later. I got to walk it off. And he, yeah. he cannot catch his breath. Yeah, and he starts, and we never come back to this guy. And never come back to the last resort. But this is one of my favorite parts of the movie because it's such a slice of... Florida. Yeah, a slice of Florida, a slice of the kind of crew she was running around with. If, if Eileen was not in prison, she very much could have been just drinking a beer, watching the human bomb blow himself up that day. Well, Nick finds himself in a... It's like a hotel where a guy's living. Dick Mills. He uh, is the subject of some headlines called Sex Romp with Serial Killer, which is alleging uh, some things he may or may not have said to a reporter yeah. involving like violent sex fantasies that Eileen allegedly told him about. Yeah, he said that the article was pretty much crap, except that she had told him that she had rape fantasies, which... To be completely honest, is not an uncommon fantasy when you start talking about like a little left of center fantasies. Sure. But yeah, he said that she had told him she had this rape fantasy. He said he had no idea that she was a murderer. Oh, at one point he does ask, he asks Nick who he can contact about suing the person who wrote the article. There's a couple of times in this movie where people seem to confuse a documentary filmmaker with a lawyer. They act as though he has some sort of authority. Like Nick was supposed to be the 93 equivalent of the internet that could just pop up information that they would need. Why don't you do this? Yeah. I mean, he's doing what he does right there. Yeah. Or why don't you take a break from this thing you're doing and help me with something? And it's like, no, that's not the point. The doc there's Lawyers don't give uh, discounts to documentarian uh, hookups. No. <laughs> Nick also does ask Dick about... You know, the fact that Lee was a lesbian, self-proclaimed lesbian, but obviously she had sex with men. And Dick's answer is basically, he just thinks that she had sex with whoever at the time. Yeah. When asked why she was with him for so long, like she, I guess they shacked up for a week together. I truly believe she might've just needed a place to stay. And he was a decent guy who wasn't mistreating her. And so she stayed. He did say that she talked about Ty. A decent creep. A decent creep. Well, you know what I mean. He wasn't trying to put one over on her. He wasn't going to beat her. You know, she probably felt safe enough. He posits at one point that maybe she liked him because he thought maybe he looked like Ty. <laughs> Which they don't. No. The guy says a lot of things. And he, yeah. says, <laughs> he says in regards to the tabloid headlines and the stories within that they're wrong. Somewhat true, but wrong. <laughs> and he tells a similar story. Where this, the schematics are a little different than what's printed, but ultimately not that different. Yeah, yeah. It's still about a violent sex fantasy that he claims Eileen said to him. Yeah. And I wrote that uh, Dick was probably a client. 
I'm sure he sure. traded sexual favors for something, but he's not going to admit to just being a John. Yeah, he does at one point say that they were just two lonely, desperate people getting along together for a while. He said he's not sure why he wasn't killed. No, but again, I don't think he posed a threat to her. And maybe uh, as far as if you're wanting to kill someone and take their nice car and money, I don't think Dick Mills is the guy you're going to no. do that with. This is we go back to Arlene again. Arlene asks Steve to be her agent. I wonder what Steve says. I bet he mulls it over, right? Oh, yeah. I'm sure he thought about it for a whole half second before he jumped on that. He says yes. Yeah, and she now is saying that she won't even talk to Nick before she gets some money. She won't even have a conversation with him. She wants Nick to defer to Steve regarding what Nick is going to pay them. Yeah. So she's kind of making it like, I'm not really the person that talks about the money. Mm -hmm. But she's still kind of selling him on what he can get for this interview. Yeah, she says the amount of money. So he keeps asking her, is it 25000 still? Basically trying to see if he can negotiate at some point. Because that is a lot of money. Yes. And Especially in 93. I know. And she says the amount of money depends on exactly what he wants access to. So does he want these letters that they've written to each other? Does he want to see pictures? Does he want... I can't remember what else. She, like, has this whole list of things. I don't know what else she could give him besides that. She's pitching the cell, but doesn't really want to talk about the money. Yeah, so he doesn't get anywhere with her, and we cut back to... We see footage of Eileen in the courtroom, because this is what we got so far. <sighs> right. And as far this... as what Nick has. Right, and this is when we find out Mallory had served 10 years for rape prior to this. But that for some reason, the judge would not allow that information into court. That's very strange. And also, this particular trial was for the murder of Mallory. But the judge wouldn't let his violent sexual past into play into the courtroom, but did allow the other murders that she's accused of committing. Right. Even though this trial was specifically for the Mallory murder. Which to me is a complete double standard because her whole defense is that she killed Mallory in self-defense because he raped her. She goes into a very difficult to listen to description of all the things that she says he did to her. I think that you and I felt differently about this testimony. Yeah. Because... I believed her. I do feel like she was maybe a little calm in the telling, but I did feel like she got upset. I believed her. I don't know. I really believe that something happened, maybe not exactly like she said it did, because no one was there except for her, who is still alive. But he did have a history of sexual violence. She killed him. As soon as she could get to her gun, she shot him. This is where my sympathy for Eileen comes in. Because I believe that if she had stopped then, this has now gone too far and this awful thing happened and I need to try to like straighten out my life and not do this thing anymore. Or if she told somebody who would have believed her that this thing happened and maybe she tried and no one listened, who knows? Or maybe she thought nobody would believe her, so what's the point? Or she was scared. If the situation with Mallory hadn't gone down the way that it did, then maybe the other seven men wouldn't have happened. It's probably likely... Very high odds that Mallory was violent with her. Yeah, I mean, listen, and it's not, wouldn't be the first time. I do think that Mallory, the odds are that Mallory was probably violent with her, given his history. Uh -huh. I felt like the way she was 
it was like she was a restless child in that courtroom. And when she was giving that detailed testimony Mm -hmm. that told of all kinds of levels of abuse that really could not be proven because it wasn't like she went to a hospital or anything for this stuff. And she's looking up in the air as she's telling the story, like, like a kid trying to figure out what to say to get out of trouble. And I believe that there was a shady confrontation between the two, but that Eileen maybe felt the need to pad a truth with some lies to kind of help move it along and to help paint the picture she wanted to paint. And that act was probably also the impetus in her mind to kill the other men, because as much as I think Mallory might have been a violent fuck, there's nothing convincing me that any of the other men were. No, and I don't think the other men were either. I think it, I think something clicked in her brain and then she saw all men like that. She didn't feel safe anymore in those situations. I thought she was just nervous. Eileen is sentenced to death. She she thought she was going to get off. Like, she legitimately thought she was going to be acquitted. She yells out, (laughs) She has, she, Steve is not her defender at this point. She's, uh, she has a public defender who she would later fire. She takes on Steve with Arlene's suggestion. Right. And Steve has Eileen plead no contest. Arlene's justification for this, why she's okay with Lee pleading no contest, is because she says she could be home with Jesus in a matter of years. She'd be much better in heaven. So Arlene is basically saying she needs to die. She'll be better if she dies. And she is her legal next of kin. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Eileen is taking responsibility for her acts, which she still says are all self-defense. And she is sentenced to death for the other murders. And she <laughs> she says in the courtroom. Thank you. And uh, probably see uh, I'll be up in heaven while y'all are rotting in hell. Okay, there will be an automatic appeal. You have the right to an appeal. Mr. Glazer, is that going to be handled by you? May or the your wife and kids job? get raped. For someone who hates rape so much, you wouldn't think she'd wish it on uh, kids. But she was pretty pissed off. We cut to Steve playing the guitar. I'm already done with this fucking guitar playing. Playing a Phil Ox song called Iron Lady. I guess it's in tribute to Eileen. Yeah, he said he played this song for Lee after she was sentenced to to death for those three murders. Nick notes that Steve and Arlene's relationship is not as close with Eileen as Nick was led to believe. Nick goes to the prison to see Eileen, and Eileen refuses Nick's visit. The guard makes a claim that Eileen's laundry's not done and she can't get a nice dress. You just look at any picture of Eileen, doesn't seem like a dress kind of lady. I thought she said she didn't want to wear a dress, that she needed her other laundry. But I also really liked this guard. I thought she was great. I love these, I love all of the people working in this prison. She actually is telling them, she seems very apologetic. Like she really had tried to get Eileen to come out and she wouldn't. And she actually says at one point that she was trying to get it in writing. She was trying to make Eileen write down that she wouldn't come out. I think so that Nick couldn't say the prison wouldn't allow her to come out. Sure. But she seemed very accommodating. She, I think, wanted it to happen. Nick meets Arlene at her stables. Mm. He tells her Lee wouldn't talk. Arlene seems shocked. Arlene makes a claim that she wrote Eileen a letter criticizing her bad behavior in the courtroom. Yeah. And Arlene is a bit of a, uh, an apologist for her for her agent, Steve. 
Steve says Eileen wants to die, and Arlene says she doesn't. Yeah, Arlene says Lee said she wanted to die, but in her heart she wants to live. So she's mad at Steve and Arlene because she lost and they guided her. And that's the truth, (laughs) (laughs) which is maybe the most truthful thing Arlene says. And Steve talks about how... He believes she wants to die, and that's why he pled guilty for her. And I think that he did that because I think he believes she wants to die because otherwise he would feel bad for doing that. And this is when he quotes Woody Allen. And he says to her when she goes to the chair. Don't sit down. Yeah. He's a, he's zany. (laughs) We meet a prison guard. He gives a walkthrough of the execution process. I love his accent. At this point, he is seated in the chair in front of the news media witnesses and the official witnesses who are already seated in the uh, witness area. Oh, yes. I love him, too. He's brought in and put into the chair, and the straps are placed around his chest and around his lap and on his arms. And then his legs are placed into these straps and secured there. One of my favorite styles of Southern accent. Yes. He will then come over to the microphone that we have here in the witness in the chamber and remove the microphone and hold it up for the inmate to make a last statement to. He'll ask the inmate, do you have a last statement? And he will either sometimes say something or sometimes won't. I thought it was super fascinating. Don't need to go into the details of it, but... The electrode then is placed on top of the inmate's head. It's an actual cap with an electrode inside. It was interesting. He walked through every step of what the process would be. And he just seemed like a really good dude. And this just happens to be his job. Doing his job. Yep. Nick's in the car with Steve. Steve has brought along a tape of himself singing cover songs. (laughs) Uh, We hear him singing a Pete Floyd song. So they're sitting in the car. Steve has a tape of himself singing Pink Floyd songs. And he's having Nick... Listen to it. It's on film. We have to also say at this point, every time they make this trip, listening to this music that Steve has recorded and is now singing along to, it is a seven-hour car trip every time they try to go visit Eileen. So Nick had to, for the sake of us, sat through a lot of Steve covers. He took he took one for us. Yeah. Oh, this is also when Steve starts talking about how he may have to give up the case because he is running out of money or he's not getting paid for any of this. So it's a convenient conversation Mm -hmm. because Nick agrees to pay Steve $10,000 because he and Arlene are representative of Eileen. And he would like to talk to Eileen. Nick agrees to pay Steve $10,000 quote unquote with Eileen's permission. Right. And there's a contract and everything. There's footage of Nick paying Steve. The payment is claimed to be 2,500 a piece for Arlene and Steve, a thousand is going to Eileen, and mm-hmm. I guess the rest is covering some legal fees or something. I guess Steve and makes a betting joke. He makes a joke about going to the races or going to bet on the horses as soon as he's handed that money. He walks into Arlene's house with some money and walks back out. We don't see Arlene. We don't see Arlene holding the money. No, she's in the house. In the beginning of the movie, she's talking too damn much. Yeah. And then as it goes on and we keep seeing Arlene, she's, you see her trying to remove herself more and more the responsibility of the money. Yeah. There's some questions, of course, as far as paying money. 
uh, mm-hmm. for having to do this. But Steve says the Son of Sam law isn't in effect anymore. Yeah. The Son of Sam law, of course, is a law that prevents murderers and criminals from profiting off of their crime. So this time when he gives him the $10,000, is going to give the money to Eileen. They've gone down to visit her again. And this time they can't get in because the prison's on lockdown. And they get in trouble because they've driven around the prison taking film footage. So they search their vehicle. Yeah. They don't get to meet Eileen, and they go back again. Eileen recounts that Eileen's eyes were not that of a killer. Eileen Warnos is pretty notorious. A lot of people know about her. Mm-hmm. So imagine her eyes. Just imagine those eyes. Those wide, crazy eyes. Those darting, precious eyes. Gosh. Yeah, Arlene says when she first saw... Eileen on TV, she prayed for a couple weeks about whether or not she should contact her. And then she felt like she should. She wrote a letter to Lee. Apparently, when Lee got arrested, she had said to God, if you're real, send me a Christian woman to get me through this. And then she got this letter from Arlene, and they shortly became mother and daughter. It's funny how uh, someone who is plastered all over the TV inspires Arlene to reach out because mm-hmm. uh, she could always go to a women's prison and uh, meet many troubled women that might need a little bit of prayer and a little Absolutely. bit of help. No, it's when, uh, when someone becomes famous that, you know, Jesus is reaching out. They go again to, to the prison to talk to Eileen after an hour. They say that she refuses to come out. At this point, I, as a viewer, I'm feeling frustrated on Nick's behalf that he's not been able to get in to see her yet. We see some footage. Uh, Eileen is citing Ty's betrayal as a big burn. She's being shuffled around county to county for these trials. So she makes a statement of, how many times are they going to kill me? We see footage of relatives of the victims. Uh, Seems like they all straight up want her to die. Yeah, Eileen's on this kick about thinking that They only just keep bringing her out because politicians are trying to get reelected. And she uh, would be conveniently be able to be used for that. But uh, Eileen, of course, made it easy for them to do that. Yeah, for sure. This is when we meet the author of the book Dead Ends, which is about Eileen. The biggest thing to me in this conversation is he actually describes kind of how she would go out when she was quote unquote soliciting she wasn't really doing that she'd go out and like cut off jeans and tennis shoes and a camo shirt baseball cap and glasses just walking down the road she'd get a ride and then she would tell him a sob story yeah she wasn't someone who was like i gotta go work them streets let me take let me get ready put on my mini skirt she always just dressed the same no makeup she was a person of complete impulse yeah and i'm sure when her money ran out That's when she went back out. Eileen does not strike me as a big planner. No. I think she had motivations, and especially with the murders, she had motivations of what she wanted to do, maybe justifications she built up in her mind for wanting to do them. But as far as like willfully stalking an individual, not really. Absolutely not. And Eileen would approach people. It wouldn't be like, hey, you want a good time? She'll get into the cars of people with a sob story. We've all encountered people like this. Apparently she had photos of kids and would start talking about her kids and how she didn't have any money. I've heard stories like that from people when I'm pulling up the convenience stores. Oh, yeah. And people are coming to, they say, my car's run out of gas up the street. That's a pretty popular one. Yeah. That's how she would 
initially open up to people. And then it would be like, hey, do you want like a tug or something like that? And then someone say, okay. And other people were probably just being nice to her, maybe yeah. giving her a ride. Maybe she got some money out of him without having to do anything. This is where I kind of get into the misconception of what I thought was happening. Because for some reason, through the years, I had this impression that she was sort of a vigilante. Am I saying that right? Vigilante? That she was soliciting men and then killing them because they were the kind of men who would cheat on their wives. Yeah, I think there's a lot of perspective like that on her killings. Yeah. And her motivations. But there was never a mention of anything remotely like that in this documentary. Nobody no. said anything that may, would have made me ever think that. I don't know if that's like a lot of the, the past, movie or... A lot of the past information that we have on Eileen, when we're talking about the acts that she did, that's, like we said, this movie is not specifically about that particularly True. we don't really get that heavy into it it almost just assumes that you know about eileen's murders off like right on hand yeah steve still claims that eileen wants to die but there are movie deals being negotiated and a film is apparently maybe in pre-production called overkill eileen states in court that the press is defamatory and resents being called a serial killer she's still waving the self-defense flag and says that she was framed, which, uh, I mean, there's kind of that's kind of a different thing. Yeah, I actually think the movie Overkill had come out at this point. Because she does say the movie Overkill was a total lie, says that she's not a serial killer, and states what you said a minute ago, that she can't be a serial killer because she didn't stop her plan. That's her sort of justification of why she's not a serial killer. This is also around about this time, there is a clip of... Steve singing his own version of The Great Pretender, and he's changed the words to, what is it again? Public Defender. Uh, it's awful. Oh, and that's just a tiny little side clip. I don't know I don't know why Nick keeps putting him singing all in this documentary. That might be my only thing I don't like about this documentary. They also talk about how there's talk of trying to keep part of Lee's brain for experimentation after she's electrocuted. Sheriffs and past public defenders and psychologists are refusing questions regarding film right negotiations, and cops are allegedly involved in movie discussions with Ty. We meet an officer. I guess he's he's a former police officer. At yeah, this time. at this point, he's not a policeman anymore. He's now a private investigator. He claims that he was demoted to patrol for uncovering this plot, specifically of police trying to negotiate film rights with Ty. Yeah. I guess to, you know, have Ty turn on Eileen and Ty can make some money. I'm not sure if that ever panned out in that way. There's audio of Ty getting Eileen to confess over the phone. And Ty plays paranoia very well. She's she was so she is good a at that. Good actress. And I know we again, feel differently about Eileen on the stand and whether she was lying or nervous or fidgety because she didn't want to be there. But when she's listening to Ty on this phone call, she is genuinely torn apart. Yeah, she, I mean, I believe that she loved her. She loved her. So she called her her wife. She was the husband and Ty was her wife. Ty is in the conversation uh, saying that Lee must not love her. 
if uh, she would allow her to go down for this. Yeah. And the police must have been so pleased with this because this is the reason that Eileen so willingly came along. Mm -hmm. It could have rolled out for years if it wasn't for this moment. Yeah, if Ty had refused to do this or acted like she didn't know. There's one point where Lee actually says, if I have to confess to everything to keep you safe, I will. And in that sentence, I feel like there is more to that. I feel like Ty knew a lot more than she says she knew. I don't necessarily think she was there, but there's, what was it? She was at one point driving the car of some a man who had been murdered. Right. She knew it was happening. There was money coming in from somewhere. Yeah, there's no evidence of Ty being involved with the murders directly. All evidence found was linked only to Eileen. Ty claimed that Eileen had mentioned the first kill. And then Ty, I think, just pretty much was like, don't tell me. I mean, these murders were convenient as she used these killings to provide for her and Ty and their little weird nuclear family that Eileen was feeling pressure to keep together. I bet Ty uh, did not ask a lot of questions. I mean, it just seems to me that Ty is very complicit. The fact that she's just scot-free done. Is this the point where they talk about how... All of Eileen's customers had gone off to war. Eileen makes that claim that she lost a lot of customers. Yeah. Because of the, the, the first Gulf War. And she was trying to say that before that happened, she just had regulars. And she just went to her regulars and everything was easy. And it was after those guys went to war, Ty was like, hey, we don't have any money. You should go pick up strangers or you should go see if you can find anybody randomly and that that's kind of something that Eileen points to as like a bad decision or like a turning point in if she could have just kept her regulars she would have been okay but she's very much a victim there's always going to be a reason yes and total totally a victim yeah and Ty I mean there's no way Ty didn't know about her side profession here you cannot like it and pretend like everything's fine but it's a bunch of bull baloney. As it doesn't as, mean you're not complicit. As far as her clients going on, Eileen was living a hard life. Yeah. And she was wearing it in her looks. She was naturally uh, an attractive young woman. And it was probably a lot easier in those days when she was younger. But I'm sure it was a lot more complicated. It was not as plentiful as she was getting older. That Florida sun wearing down on her, her incessant drinking. Uh, she was a huge... She lived a hard life. She was a huge drinker mm -hmm. at the time that she was arrested. This is another thing, too, where there's a psychologist at this point, I believe, that comes on and starts talking about how that through this whole time, Eileen was just killing her father over and over again. Uh, okay. One of the justifications of this. I guess. I'm not a, I'm not a shrink. I mean, he quoted Freud, I think, in it. It's really not a very complicated theory <laughs> to come up with. The demoted officer that we talked to, he claims that he gets threats to his family and that he's turned over evidence to Florida law enforcement, but they've done nothing. And his information regarding the case and his claims of cops uh, allegedly involved in movie discussions was stolen from his home. There was a break-in, and they only took this stuff. Yeah, it was really creepy. It was like 10 o'clock on a weekday, and his wife had gone to the grocery store. Somebody was watching them. As Nick is talking to him, 
he's sitting in front of a pool and you hear someone splash into the pool. I almost couldn't listen to everything he said right after that because I was just watching the pool over his shoulders to see if some tiny child was going to swim by. I wanted a tiny child to swim by so badly. This is something that every documentary needs, especially a documentary that's about such serious crimes like this. Yeah. That moment of mundane. That's what I love about documentaries. And that's something that a documentary can portray better than any other kind of film. This guy's talking about how his house is being broken into and the conscious decision to leave this in there. Mm -hmm. And then everyone pauses because someone just splashed and jumped into a pool. But it also is a subtle, well, maybe not subtle, but it also is a representation of Florida life. Absolutely. Direct witnesses won't talk to Nick. He goes to a place that he thinks he can talk to somebody, and they're like, you need to get out of here for we call the law. Lady's got, like, the hose, water, and some flowers. A man in a lawn chair is like, I ain't got nothing to say to you. Arlene, at some point, wrote to Lee and said that she didn't trust Nick's eyes. <laughs> I don't know how Nick found out about this. Well, Arlene... It we see Arlene. Nick has gone to Arlene once again. Yeah, but she won't talk to him. And she she says she hasn't talked to Eileen in over two months. And Nick is a little angry because he handed Steve $10,000. There's no results that they said that they would get. And Nick, he kind of breaks his dryness. This is the part where he kind of breaks. He's, he's frustrated at Arlene. Yeah. And he says, I'm not going to do an English accent. <laughs> but he says, I think you're a very very deceptive person and arlene is just saying get off my property i have a right to tell you to get off my property and also saying she never got any money and he needs to talk to steve and she's on camera negotiating costs yes we see steve bringing money into her house and walking out but she don't know nothing about that steve and nick go to see eileen again and this time eileen arrives to talk to nick yes. and she's smiling and is apologizing for being late. She looks pretty healthy. She said, do you have any problems with Arlene? Arlene talked to Eileen after Nick's confrontation. Yeah. She said she hadn't talked to her in over two months. But you know that when Nick left her little uh, uh, wolf prison, <laughs> wolf prison farm, that she called that prison pretty quick. Oh, absolutely. And then Nick is very quick to ask Lee, did she get her money? And she says that she did. And she even recounts the amount that was agreed to be paid out, her 1000 2500 split. But then they start talking about, oh, he asks, why is money so important? And Lee straight up says it's not important to her. She can't really do that much with it, but it's important to Arlene and Steve and they're money hungry, which yeah. is not a surprise, but it's a surprise sort of that she Lee knows that. That she acknowledges. Yeah, that. that she's saying that outright. And that there's deception on their part. I mean, it's obvious to us as a viewer, but it, it, but yeah, she seems to also understand it as well. Yeah, I think they've not been able to deceive her as well as they think that they have. Lee said Arlene said first to plead guilty. That, and she said that Arlene said that she can't take these trials. You're hurting your mother and that the cops need to make this movie. And then Eileen says that Arlene and Steve gave her ideas on how to commit suicide in prison. Lee said that Arlene didn't adopt me to be my mother. She wants to have access to visit me and to bury me. The whole thing about the police needing to make the trial was, I guess Arlene was trying to convince Lee that if they had the trial, there would be too much 
facts would get out and the police would have more information to just make this better story. And that if they could avoid having a trial, that that might kind of squash either their ability to make the movie or their access to the information or the public wanting to hear about it. Eileen is hoping for a new trial and a new investigation. And she's, uh, of course, doing that thing where she talks to a documentary filmmaker as if he's a lawyer. Mm-hmm. But he is also pretty much a reporter as well. Yeah. So maybe he could help. This is actually when we find out about Ty convincing her to go to strangers because she says this herself in the interview. She also said that she never provoked any of the men, that they all attacked her, and that she was ladylike and clean <laughs> and did not swear in their presence. I think that definition's different in Eileen's head than it is for a lot of us. Right, what it is to be ladylike and clean. <laughs> Eileen asks Nick to investigate a uh, a company called Republican Pictures, who yeah. are, and they are making the Overkill film. Are they making the Overkill film, or are they making the police film? Because the Overkill film is a film that happened. The Overkill film, I don't know if it's out at this point. Okay. Of this documentary. Okay. I know you said that, but I don't know. Okay, I may have misunderstood the timeline. Nick has to do some voiceovers and bleep, because it took Eileen a while to meet with Nick, but... You get her in front of him, and she's perfectly willing to talk. But Nick is having to bleep out some things that she's saying because she says a lot of things regarding um, some theories she has. They have potential legal ramifications if Nick just allowed it all to go out. I think she's probably naming names because she thinks that these policemen, she basically is accusing them of framing her for this or making her seem more guilty or convicting her without a fair trial because they want this movie to happen. Nick sets it for a Tuesday meeting with Eileen, but the prison bans him. Yeah. And they say they ban him for that time he and Steve were rolling around and taking footage, but that was two visits ago. Yeah, that's a bunch of crap. And of course, surprise, surprise, Steve will not be involved for the appeal of Eileen. He got his 2500 bucks and the so-called legal fees, I'm sure, and he's done. Yep. Dr. Legal is uh, riding off into the TV sunset. Singing his songs. Singing his sad, sad songs. We meet a man who's working for the Sheriff's Department, and he announces the resignation of an officer named Dan Henry. Henry resigns after he was bugged negotiating a movie deal regarding the Eileen Warnos case. And it is actually proven that police took the money. And if they can... Prove that in a court of law, that could overturn at least one of the death sentences. Yeah. The movie then ends, the credits roll. This, like we said, this film takes place not long after these murders occurred. The date of that press conference that you were just talking about was November 10th, 1992. And I think she was arrested in 91, maybe? Gosh, I don't know. Don't quote me on that. The murders were in 89 and 90. Yeah, maybe 90. She was arrested on January 9th, 1991. Okay, so yeah, it was 91. Over the credits, there's audio of Nick constantly calling the sheriff's department. He's trying so hard. This is what good reporters and documentarians do. They just bug the shit out of you. And at some point in the calls, he doesn't need to introduce himself like the person on the (laughs) taking the calls knows exactly who it is yeah hello mr broomfield (laughs) the last of nick's calls goes to steve's answer machine and of course steve is no longer taking nick's calls and that is the end of eileen warnos selling of a serial killer 
there wasn't even a ending statement, was there? No. It just ended. It ended on the fact that there actually was, for all the crazy shit that comes out of Eileen's mouth, she was on to something regarding police corruption Yeah. in terms of movie rights. Yeah. That was actually a thing. You know, we're into true crime, and we've absorbed a lot of information of not just Eileen, but a lot of stuff. These specific things are something that I did not really retain. Yeah. And a lot of stuff that's in this story, particularly. And it was very interesting to me. Yeah, I didn't know anything about her lawyer. I knew that a woman adopted her after she was arrested, but I didn't know anything about that woman. Angela, we go pee-pee on the classic star rating. Oh, yes. I do like stars, though. Well, but not these stars. Not rating stars. The only time we truly approve of star ratings is when you go on iTunes and you give us five stars. Oh, yeah. Those are good stars. I'm not comfortable with it, but we will accept it. I do believe that iTunes should revert to a Herzog rating scale. Truth. I'll have to make my case to them directly. Go to uh, Apple offices. <laughs> Where are they at? Seattle? I don't know. I don't know. But we rate movies in a Herzog scale. Herzog is the demigod representation. Werner Herzog is pretty much the Hercules of documentary filmmakers. And we rate it one through five Herzogs. I just pictured Herzog like all oiled up. Wearing a lion pelt. <laughs> like a little Herzog head on like an Arnold Schwarzenegger body. Like in like, I think I was thinking of Conan the Barbarian, but still, that's the image I got. You're welcome, everyone. So what we will do is I will give it one through five hurt songs. Okay. Angela will give her one through five hurt songs. Mm -hmm. We will combine those together like Legos. Kids love Legos. You see how I throw that out there? Yeah. Because it makes it shit hot. Kids love it. This one's for the kids. This is going to say this is not a kids episode. <laughs> and that accumulates to the best out of 10 hurt songs. Now, this movie... This isn't a movie that's just like, here's the story of Eileen Warnos. Even at this point that the film was made, you could make a generic documentary of the crimes of Eileen Warnos mm -hmm. leading up to, and show, throw in that footage of her being sentenced to death. But this movie wasn't about that. We said up top that Eileen was not the only villain in this movie, possibly not even the most hated person in this movie. Right, sure. She had a crooked shit TV lawyer. Anyone with common sense would probably look at this guy's commercials and say, this guy is, this guy is better called Saul before there was a Ugh. Saul. He probably wishes he was as connected as Saul. Yeah. Yeah. But he's just like a doofus, a failed musician who makes document documentary filmmakers listen to tapes of himself. I think I might've hated Arlene the most in this movie. She's a holier than thou. Just cause she's got the, she's got Jesus on her lips and money on her mind. Mm -hmm. And she is saying whatever she can to get her her bag of nickels out of this horrifying story of someone who straight up murdered people. Based on my personal experiences, when someone comes up to you and they're, they're panhandling, they want something from you. Mm -hmm. It happens every place in America. But when they start talking about how I should trust them because they're Christian people right. and they're church-going folk, my brain goes, beware, beware, beware. Yeah. And they're not talking about church casually, like, oh, we did this in Sunday school. They're using that religion to convince me that they should be trusted. Right. A red flag pops up, 
a siren alarm and my brain goes off. Yeah. And I'm like, do not trust this person. I'm I'm a good Christian person. And my kids are uh they're out of gasoline. <laughs> <laughs> my kids are run out of gas. I remember going, uh, I think it was in Memphis the first time I encountered this, where a homeless person was like, hey, can I get a dollar? I want to get a beer. (laughs) Just being honest, I gave that dude a dollar. Arlene is like that. (laughs) Arlene is like that person, but she has a house and a wolf prison and a horse torture center. Mm -hmm. She has resources, but she wants more. She is essentially that type of person. To me, she's... A gigantic piece of shit. Yep. And people who truly have the faith and really love their religion or whatever brand of Christianity would be very disappointed in someone like this. Yeah. At this point, I'm no longer even reviewing the movie. Let me get back to it. I was going to say, and your Herzogs are... This movie is, it just captures this moment in this major case. Eileen Warnos has become even more prolific since these days. And this movie just being right in the front of revealing some very personal inside stuff regarding this case. Yeah. And the corrupt, because it's not just about the the horrible acts of someone who might be mentally ill. I think definitely is. I don't weep tears when John Wayne Gacy gets electrocuted. But on principle, I am against the death penalty. I do think that Eileen did not get a very fair trial. Yeah. She did get bad representation mm-hmm. from Steve. This guy, he did not even be a lawyer. A no contest, she could have done that. He didn't do anything. He did nothing. He stood there and said those words. Uh, again, I'm I'm leaving the review. <laughs> but this movie is so good. I really think this is a really good movie. And it's a very important movie in terms of documentaries about serial killers. Mm-hmm. There's just so many layers here from the the last resort bar to fucking weirdo Steve to this crooked ass Arlene. And then to Eileen herself, it really increased my curiosity towards Eileen Warnos. Yeah. I kind of maybe lumped her into a lot of true crime shit because we, oh, yeah. we take in a lot. This movie made me want to go deeper into this story yeah. and the legal things that are surrounding it. It's not just about an awful person who committed awful crimes. It's also about the corruption and the cycle of corruption that surrounds this. God, I thought this was so good. I got to give it five Herzogs. Wow. Five out of five Herzogs. And yourself? This is a great documentary. I loved all those little extra moments that he added in to, like, the human bomb left in the thing with the kid in the pool. These little things that really gave you a sense of time and place and culture that surrounded this woman. I was fascinated by the story of this lawyer and this woman who adopted a grown woman under the guise of being a good Samaritan. She was so gross. It's almost as if she wanted to adopt Lee, even if there was no money involved. She wanted to be the mother of the woman who was murdered. You know, that's mm. disgusting. She wasn't helping her. And encouraged her to... Encouraged her to kill herself. Encouraged her to plead guilty, but encouraged her to kill herself. If you love someone, you don't do that. You also don't put wolves in cages. Don't breed any sort of animals. She admires their free spirit, Angela. 
Right. The free spirit that she was trying to keep in a cage. I am so surprised that there was never a big speech by Arlene about how Lee was a free spirit that had been caged and she just wanted to help her. Yeah. I was like kind of waiting for that like dramatic turn to happen. But when that might have happened was when Arlene got really like, I'm not talking to you anymore. You didn't give me my money. And the story was fascinating. Like I said, I had no idea about this stuff. This is some of the stuff that you don't normally hear about the extra things that are happening. It's all about the testimony and the facts of the murders and trying to show footage of as much as you can and photos of dead people. And there was none of that. The dirtbag hangers on. Yeah. And it was titled perfectly, The Selling of a Serial Killer. That is what this was. This was a story about all the people trying to profit on Eileen. I cannot wait to watch the next film, the 10 years later when Nick Broomfield goes back to Eileen and does another movie, I am going to give this documentary 4.5. Four and a half Herzogs. Herzogs. You combine my five Herzogs. Yes. With your four and a half Herzogs. Yeah. It's nearly a perfect documentary, but not quite. Not quite. Nine and a half out of ten Herzog. Wow, that's a lot of Herzogs. Boy, we've seen some good ones lately. We really have. We need to watch some mediocrity to balance this out. I guess. We we could watch that terrible H.H. H. Holmes documentary again. No, I don't think so. There's got to be a better one. <laughs> I don't think there's anything wrong with sympathizing with Eileen. I don't necessarily think that makes you a bad person or a mistaken person. I mean, a compassionate person is a compassionate person. But I personally do not feel that Eileen truly is any better or different than a lot of other serial killers. Hmm. I think maybe the fact that she didn't like lop off heads or fuck and fuck them might be something. I mean, there, she does have her differences, but the way her crime snowballed and escalated, I mean, Eileen's not the the first serial murderer to have a, a hard childhood. No, not at all. So many people in this world go through terrible things, worse things than they did. But it was just the right combination of mental illness and situation and just the people in their lives and the things that happened to them. It kind of led them to a point where I think they just completely lost it. It doesn't mean anything they did is okay. She shouldn't have killed any of those people. But I do feel some sympathy to her because I think that, I don't know, I think it could have played out a different way. If the circumstances had been different, but they weren't. So Eileen definitely did seem mentally affected. Yeah. I don't know if it's any true clinical way, maybe not schizophrenia or anything like that, but her trauma seemed to stop her at a childlike level. Yeah, she had arrested development. And she reacted to things as a child or an indignant young teenager would. Yeah. And it might seem frustrating when it's children or teenagers doing that, but when it's an adult who are trying to navigate their way around personal responsibilities, that's when that frame of mind can be dangerous. Yeah. And you had mentioned how you had thought for uh, at one point that she was almost like a vigilante. Yeah. The way media has kind of portrayed her, certain aspects of media. And I thought that was super interesting. Maybe in a lot of her own mental justifications, that killing these men because they were people who were going to go fuck around on their wives and mm-hmm. families. Mm-hmm. I bet maybe she did use that as a bit of a justification. It's almost like an inverted version because 
sex workers are often the victims of serial killers. A guy like the Green River Killer, Gary Ridgway, oh, yeah. killed almost exclu- pretty much exclusively sex workers. And when he was questioned about it, he honestly believed that he was doing the world a favor. Eileen is almost like a flip of that. Mm-hmm. She's the prostitute or sex worker, but she's looking down on the John mm-hmm. because that's just her doing her job. But they're a fucking creep rolling yeah. around on their their family. And that first kill was probably just like a dominoes going. And and in her mind, if that that first kill was a monster, then everyone after is a monster. Yeah. And she also has the motivation to support this weird relationship unit that Ty and her have. She's not even the kind of person to flip a burger. She said she hadn't had a steady job since 84. Yeah. It would be impossible for her. She had opportunities. She married like a yacht magnate at one point when she was younger. Within very little time, she got violent with him and he had to get the thing annulled. And this was a dude with money. She wasn't stable. She's She was fucked. When you're not stable, you can convince yourself a lot of things are okay or what you need to do. Boy, what a movie. Wow. And it was really good. Yeah. It's a really good movie. And go- so unlike most docu- like true crime documentaries that you actually see. And there's no frills about it. Yeah. It's straightforward, well edited. It's not trying to do some bullshit tricks like you see in a lot of documentaries these days. It's just a straightforward account of Eileen in the court system and uh, the leeches that attach to her. That was our review of the film Eileen Warnos, Selling of a Serial Killer by Nick Broomfield. Keep on docking. Say, say anything. Um, well, I could tell you about the movie. Say anything. Go ahead. With, uh, I forgot his name. I guess that means I'm no longer in love with him. John Cusack. John Cusack is in Say Anything. And that and song by Peter Gabriel, Your Thighs. Yeah. <laughs> in your thighs. Your thighs. Yeah. Your, your thighs. thighs. Your, your thighs. thighs. <laughs> We're not. We're skipping like a, a part. <laughs>